When they build the, tab the tabernacle, Moses cannot enter. When they build the temple, the priests cannot enter. The presence of God is so palpable and thick in its presence, there is not room for anything else. So I've been suspecting for quite a while that someone has been adding soil to my garden. You know, the plot thickens. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 196. So glad for you to join us. If it's your first time listening, I hope you enjoyed that dad joke. That's how we start every episode. And if it's your first time listening, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. Highest compliment you can pay me in this podcast is to share this with your family and friends. And if you do so, Make sure to do it on Instagram and tag us at Mana Food for Thought, all spelled out. You can find all of our info, uh, our social media tags, and all of our content on our website, manafoodforthought.com or manafft.com. And while you're there, click on the subscribe button to sign up for our weekly uh, newsletter, which is a psalm reflection every Wednesday morning to help prepare you for the Sunday readings a little more intensely. And also click on the give button if you feel so inclined to help support the cost of this podcast and hosting it on our website. And you can give as little as $1 a month to become a patron. And so thank you to all of our patrons, our listeners. If you're a first-time listener, long-time listener, so glad to be with you. Let's get into our joy, junk, and Jesus. My joy is that um, a lot of <clears throat> downtime over the holidays allowed for us to do some really uh, intentional nesting and preparation for baby number three. And she will be here in the next three weeks, it seems, based on how she's measuring right now. So that is very joyful and exciting. Um, the junk in my life at the moment is, as I'm recording right now, it is freezing cold in this studio. Uh, and also today, it's uh, it's Monday, it was my daughter Hannah's first day back at school, and it's been so nice having us all together. So it's kind of hard to to drop her off back at school, and she sometimes has a little difficulty after, you know, breaks, you know, staying there, and so it's just hard to be like, no, you have to stay, even though I really want her to come home, so... Um, yeah, so that was a little junky, but, um, Jesus moment, God is, is bringing all these things together to allow us to prepare for, uh, Sophia, baby Sophia. Um, I got to finish, um, kind of flooring in a section of our attic space to store things. And we got to clean out some areas, the kids room, a lot of our storage areas in the house to move some stuff up into the attic to make room, uh, for things that are in our cars. Cause we're going to need to add car seats and all this stuff, find all of our old baby stuff. So all of that kind of happened over the weekend in the past week, which was really incredible. So God really just provided the time and the energy and the resources to do that. Um, and he always does. And so it helps kind of me recognize that when I worry about, you know, how things are going to come and, um, whether or not we're going to be ready, it, I'm just always blown away by how the Lord just lines things up in such a way that it's just, it's just perfect. So, um, yeah, thank you, Jesus. So, Let's get into our episode for this week. Uh, we're always looking at the second uh, second reading, and the second reading for this upcoming Sunday, uh, the second Sunday in Ordinary Time, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is uh, sections of verse 13 through 15, and then uh, verses 17 through 20. So it's going to be like the last end of verse 13 to the beginning of verse 15, and then verses 17 through 20. So uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth was kind of um, an epicenter of 
uh, promiscuity. And by the way, if you are a parent listening to this with young children, this might not be the most uh, appropriate episode as we get into the content uh, of the second reading. And I kind of describe some of the things that Paul is addressing. So just so you are aware, you might want to pause here and listen to this later. Um, but at the time of Paul's writing, uh, Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth, or the uh, let's say the culture in Corinth, saw things like sex and prostitution as casual. Uh, prostitution was actually thriving. It was part of their cult of worship um, for the pagan uh, worship there in Corinth. Uh, and it was a very immoral kind of place equated to modern-day Las Vegas, but worse. Uh, and it was kind of an epicenter of a lot of this immoral behavior. And so um, Paul ministers there. He hears about <clears throat> these difficulties they're having with unity and with uh, morality and what it means to be church and separating themselves from this kind of immoral cultural landscape. And so he writes to them uh, in two letters that we have, but but very likely we have hints to at least two more in Scripture. Um, so he's often in communication with them, probably more so than any other church community. So um, this is what we have in our second reading uh, for this upcoming Sunday about how our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So this is what Paul writes. He says, Brothers and sisters, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? But whoever is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Avoid immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I wanted to point out, this isn't really where I'm going to go with this passage, but there's one line in this that I think is just useful for uh, defending the fact that Jesus is divine. And that's in, uh, I believe it's verse 14, where it says, God raised the Lord. And that clearly differentiates God the Father and Jesus, but gives them both this kind of divine title or status. So that's kind of a nice little verse there to remember, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, about how uh, both Jesus and God the Father are mentioned with these kind of divine qualities uh, in mind. So, but as I said, I want to get into kind of, you know, the culture in Corinth and what Paul is talking about here when he says, do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. So glorify God in your body. Avoid immorality. The word here for immorality is porneia. It's where we get the word porn or pornography from. And a lot of times, <clears throat> I think we treat these things like they are secret or hidden sins. And in the theology of the church, there is no such thing as a secret sin. There's no such thing as a private sin. Every sin that we commit, it affects the body of Christ. It affects others around us. And so just as one person, one part of the body, when it succeeds, builds up the rest of the body, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers for it. And so even if we think like, oh, I'm not hurting anyone if I'm looking at pornography. Well, yes, you are. You're hurting yourself. And the way you're hurting yourself is you're changing the way you perceive other people and programming yourself to see others as sexual objects for your own pleasure. And so when you bring that perspective out into the world, it affects the way you relate to other people, the way you think about them, and that affects the whole body of Christ. And so even though it may seem like it's hidden, it's not affecting anyone, it is. And a lot of the reasons why we think it should stay hidden or it's not affecting anyone is because of the shame and the guilt that we feel as a result of that. 
Now, a reminder, a distinction between those two things, guilt is a good thing. Guilt is something that tells us that we did something wrong that we need to correct. So it says, I did something wrong. Shame is the belief that I am wrong, and that is not good because we are all created in the image and likeness of God. We're created uh, by love and for love, and so we should not ever adopt the mentality that just because we have done something wrong, that we are wrong as a result. Um, so, yes, so I, I, there's a story I came across in, in thinking about this, how, you know, like um, we need to be aware of how these sins, however private they may seem, affect us and that we need to have a good Christian ethic across the board. There's a story about um, in 2007, there was a member of the Italian parliament um, who was part of a party that represented Christian values, and he was caught in Rome in a hotel room with two prostitutes and a huge amount of drugs, of cocaine. And so he's caught, he's arrested, and when he was asked by the authorities, how does this fit with your Christian values that you supposedly represent? He said, of course I recognize Christian values, but what has that got to do with going with a prostitute? It's a personal matter. And that is just such a problematic mentality, but it's pervasive in our culture. It's just like, well, what I do with my private time and my personal time, what does that have to do with Christianity and the value or the religion that I profess? It's personal. I get to choose. And that is very problematic, especially in the frame of what St. Paul here says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you and that you're called to glorify God with your body. He says in, um, in some of the hidden verses here that we don't read. This is kind of the rest of verse 15 and verse 16. It's not part of the reading, but it's part of the context. It's part of the passage. Paul says, shall I then take Christ's members and make them the members of a prostitute? Of course not. Or do you not know that anyone who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for the two, it says, will become one flesh. And then it says, do you not know, or then it says, but whoever is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So I think this is removed because it creates kind of like a problematic uh, idea that you're using sexual imagery in a human sense to then talk about relationship with God. And I think that's a very good image for a relationship with God, but it can be very confusing to people because of how hypersexualized our culture is. And we are programmed to think that sex is bad. And as Catholics, we say and teach, no, sex is good. It's incredible. It's beautiful because it was made by God but it has been distorted beyond belief by humanity and has become something destructive to relationships and to the body when it's used in such a way that's outside of God's design for sex and marriage. And so what Paul is writing here is he's saying, if you join yourself immorally in a sexual act to someone, you become one flesh with them, and that's a destructive thing to do because it's outside of God's design. But if you join yourself to the Lord, you become one with him. And so he's taking this like sexual image and he's saying, this is how you distort it, but this is also how you can baptize it. And that doesn't mean that we're meant to have a perverted sexual idea of our relationship with God, but it's speaking to the intimacy that we are called to have with the Lord that is surpassing the intimacy that two people in a marital union, when they enter into the sexual act, have with one another. That we are called to receive the Holy Spirit into our very lives, into our very bodies in a very vulnerable and intimate way, akin to the vulnerable act of sex. And when we do not have this kind of ethic in our life, we sell ourselves short and we release our right to our bodies. As Paul says, like, do I take members of, of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Do I sell them off? No, of course not. 
We don't want to release our right to our bodies. St. John Chrysostom, he had this really interesting analogy, and I, I just, I don't know, I find it humorous in the language that he uses. It sounds very, like, modern and street in his language, but he says, um, he, this is the analogy he says, St. John Chrysostom, supposing you had a daughter and in extreme madness had led her out to a pimp for hire and made her live a prostitute's life, and that a king's son were to pass by and free her from that slavery and join her in marriage to himself. After that, you would have no power to bring her into the brothel, for you gave her up once and for all and sold her. Such as this is our case also. We let out our own flesh for hire unto the devil, that grievous pimp. Christ saw and set it free and withdrew it from that evil tyranny. It is not then ours anymore, but his who delivered it. If you are willing to use it as a king's bride, there is none to hinder you. But if you take it where it was before, you will suffer just what they ought to suffer who are guilty of such outrages. Therefore, you should adorn rather than disgrace it. Crazy words from St. John Chrysostom, but they're, they're apt and they're, they're incredibly accurate. He says, if you sell someone off, even your own daughter, into prostitution and she's rescued, you have no right, you have no claim over that person anymore. If we sell our own bodies off into sin... Christ came and rescued them. And if we are baptized and we have sought our salvation in Jesus Christ, we no longer lay claim to our bodies. They belong to Jesus. And if we go back on that and we try to rob our bodies back from Jesus and use them for sin again, then we create this very uh, destructive and uh, sinful action. That's why Paul writes that our bodies are a temple because the temple was a house that was meant to sacrifice for the Lord, to be offered in complete and total worship for the Lord. It belonged to the Lord. It was a place of constant offering of incense, of the light, of the menorah, of the bread of the temple. The presence of God dwelled there. And so if, if you've forgotten this or you don't know this, you know, look in your Bible in, in Exodus, specifically chapters 25 to 30, 1 Chronicles chapters 28 to 29, 2 Chronicles chapters 2 through 5, about this presence of God. I'm going to read to you a couple passages to show you what this, what this, um, how this appears. So remember, first and foremost, when Moses, he leads the people out of Egypt, the Hebrew people out of Egypt, he leads them to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 16, they're, they're camping before Sinai, and it says, On the morning of the third day, there were peals of thunder and lightning, and a heavy cloud over the mountain, and a very loud blast of the shofar, so that all of the people in the camp trembled. But Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stationed themselves at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose from it as though from a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled violently. That's called Shekinah in Hebrew, the glory cloud of God, his presence, present to the Hebrew people, guiding them and speaking to them. When he instructs them to build the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, uh, they, they build it and they're instructed there's a, you know an outer tent and an inner tent. And the inner tent, when you enter it, this is the same model as the early temple. When you walk in, there's an altar for incense. To the left is the menorah where the light is constantly shining uh, or burning. To the right is the table of showbread where bread is constantly being offered. And the inner sanctuary is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And when all of that is built and put into place, it says in Exodus chapter 40, Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled down upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple or the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud rose from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their journey. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not go forward. Only when it lifted did they go forward. The cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire in the cloud at night in the sight of the whole house of Israel in all stages of their journey. The presence of God was with them. It filled the tabernacle. And then in 2 Chronicles 7, chapter 1, when they complete the temple in Jerusalem to the same similar specifications as the tabernacle to have a permanent structure of worship and sacrifice, it says, When Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. But the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, do you notice that when they build the, tab- the tabernacle, Moses cannot enter. When they build the temple, the priests cannot enter. The presence of God is so palpable and thick in its presence, there is not room for anything else. And brothers and sisters, if we are to be temples of the Holy Spirit, there is not room for anything else. The presence of God is meant to fill you so completely, so fully, that there is no room for immorality, that there is no room for sin, that there is no room for any other allegiances other than the Lord. And if the Lord is in something, if the Lord is in a relationship, in a vocation, then yes, there's room for it because the Lord is in it and the Lord is already filling up every space, every corner, every cell of our bodies. But if something is opposing the Lord, is abusive to the Lord, rejects the Lord, there is meant to be no room for that in our bodies. No room. When you would walk into the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go, and you would see the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant had on the top of it a throne or a seat. And usually when you would build some kind of altar, which is what the Ark of the Covenant really looked like, it was a table altar that was movable. When you would build something like that, in the center, the throne or the seat was where you would place an idol to represent the the God that you were worshiping. On the Ark of the Covenant, there is no idol because the presence of God literally filled up that space. That it wasn't just a representation of God, God himself dwelled there. And within the the, the Ark of the Covenant was the staff of Aaron representing the high priesthood, the sacraments, you know, in our New Testament kind of framework. It was the manna, the bread from heaven, which represents the bread of life, Jesus, who is the, the new bread, and, it, and the Ten Commandments, the tablets, the law, the word. And we, brothers and sisters, we are called to be living tabernacles, to hold in us the bread of life, the Eucharist, to hold in us the word, to know scripture and to hold its words in our heart and to have the staff, the sacraments at work in us, giving us the grace of God so that we can be temples of the Holy Spirit and there would be no room for anything else. And so, brothers and sisters, in this new year, it's, it's an apt time to ask ourselves what other things have taken over the seat or the throne on that altar of our hearts? What other things are occupying our time and attention? Wealth, pleasure, power, honor, influence, popularity, achievement, materialism, experience, addiction, whatever it is. The temple was adorned with deco- decorations to make it look like the Garden of Eden. And the ark is the new representation of the body within the garden. The ark is there to be a perfect container for the Lord. We are called to now be tabernacles, to now be temples. 
and to bring ourselves back to Eden, back to right relationship with God, because original sin has been undone by what the new Adam, Jesus, did for us on the cross. And so we can go back to the garden if we treat ourselves, our bodies, as temples, and we allow no room for immorality, no room for sin, so that the presence of God can completely fill us so there is no room for anything else. The body, brothers and sisters, was made to be good. Sex was made to be good. They're beautiful things, but we abuse them and destroy them on a daily basis by our own sin and selfishness. And that should provoke us to guilt so that we will correct it. It should not provoke us to shame because you were created to be a holy vessel, a sacred temple and tabernacle to the creator of the universe. And in order for that to happen, your body must be good. Because the tabernacles and the temple of the Old Testament, they were constantly consecrated with holy oil to be made perfect and good and undefiled before the Lord, so to be worthy to house his presence. And that is what the sacraments do for us, brothers and sisters. Baptism, Eucharist, reconciliation, confirmation, they anoint us, they make us whole, they make us able to be purified and holy, so to be worthy to house the presence of God within us. We are in a new year. The season of Lent will be, be upon us before we know it. Let us be intentional about rooting out all immorality, all porneia from our life. Not just sexual sin, but immorality has to do with anything that is unethical, anything that has to do with any of the seven deadly sins. Pride, anger, lust, gluttony, sloth, greed, envy. Root them all out, brothers and sisters, because there is meant to be no room for anything else in our temples than the presence of God. And when that happens, the presence of God will seep into everything else and baptize it and make it all for him and for, her, for his glory. And so I pray in this new year that that is true for you. I pray it is true in my own life. Know that I am praying for you. Please pray for me. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless you.